The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm John Emmons, intern at Law Affair, with an episode of Rational Security from March 26, 2023. For today's episode, the team at Law Affair decided to cross-post this week's episode of Rational Security, a podcast hosted by Scott R. Anderson, Quinn Jurassic, and Alan Rosenstein, in which they cover the week's big national security news stories. Today's episode is entitled Rational Security 2.0, The Mission Admonished Edition. In the episode, Anderson, Jurassic, and Rosenstein discuss Donald Trump's potential indictment by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis' recent characterization of the Russia-Ukraine war as a territorial dispute, the 20th anniversary of the American invasion of Iraq, and more. This is Rational Security. So I have to say, daycare is amazing, and we are so lucky that we found a good daycare for our kid, and it's just fabulous in every respect, except one, which is that our child is a absolute germ factory, and therefore my wife and I are constantly sick. I feel like it is not just a daycare thing. I have my kid and nanny share. I mean, he only interacts with one other, two other children, small children on a regular basis, and it's still just a disease factory. I don't understand. And he's constantly got his hands in his mouth, and so he's just like spreading it everywhere. Kids and are I kids are disgusting. Every other week, I love them, they but are. they are objectively disgusting i don't know uh quinta do you get sick from your dog frequently or i was gonna make that joke i did google uh, whether dogs could get covid in a panic the other day and it seems like they can but it doesn't really affect them yeah don't you remember when like two months into covid uh there was a dog in hong kong well the world health organization at some point like issued a press release about how like dog you could be around dogs or something and then for a week we all made the who made who let the dogs out joke you don't remember that that was great. I don't think we all did that. Yeah, Alan. that might it was it you. was May of 2020. It was bleak. We were all super locked down. I was doing the best I could, guys. They're all rabidly anti-mask, though. That's the thing about dogs. <laughs> they yeah. they are, they are. Hopefully not <laughs> rabidly, not actually rabidly anti-mask. That would be a real bummer. We just killed that joke, Alan. Oh, well, <laughs> over, over I'm tired. Over I, I feel terrible. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, and I am here with my two other regular co-hosts, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And we are thrilled to have you all here back with us this week to talk over the week's big national security news coming down the pike for what we are calling the Mission Admonished Edition in recognition of at least one of our stories my co-hosts don't like that title. It's maybe not my best work, but I think it works better than Mission Just Accomplished. Mission Accomplished. Just do Mission, mission Accomplished. Question yeah, mark. At least it has to be Mission Accomplished. You have to yeah, bring your voice at right. the end. That's right. Mich- mission Accomplished? I don't. That's not the way I was raising my voice, Alan. I don't think that accomplishes it at all. That's okay. <laughs> Alan's simulation of human emotions has, has cracked <laughs> finally it, around it, this it's point. It's hard. I didn't, get my, I didn't get my latest firmware update, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm like... I'm yeah. like uh, uh, a last generation chat GPT. It's you know not quite. That's what Alan is just is just a bearded chat GPT <laughs> uh, simulating human interaction. No, Scott, you did not have a good dinner with your wife. <laughs> <laughs> For our first topic, what else can I get away with on Fifth Avenue? 
Donald Trump is expected to become the first former president to be indicted on criminal charges this week. If that is, local authorities are not deterred by the public protests Trump supporters are preparing to hold in New York City at his request. What will this move mean for the country and how might it end? Topic two, territorial refute. After weeks of avoiding the issue, likely 2024 Republican presidential contender Ron DeSantis adopted the position that supporting Ukraine, which he described as being involved in a territorial dispute with Russia, is not a vital U.S. interest, bringing him into alignment with former President Trump and signaling a strong lean towards isolationism in the 2024 Republican field. What will this mean for the likely candidates and for U.S. support for Ukraine moving forward? And topic three, the blood, treasure, and regret anniversary. This past week marked the 20th anniversary of the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq, which set out to remove a dictator and welcome a new wave of democracy in the Middle East, but has instead resulted in an Iraq that is still recovering from years of sectarian violence and increasingly under Iran's influence. What is the legacy of the decision to invade and what should it mean for U.S. foreign policy moving forward? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So to timestamp this, we are recording this uh, on uh, Wednesday late morning. And so there's a lot of speculation that the grand jury in Manhattan will, at some point in the near future, uh, vote on whether to indict former President Donald Trump in connection with a $130,000 hush money payment that Trump, right before the 2016 election, made to former adult film star Stormy Daniels, who was alleging that she had an extramarital affair. Devoted listeners and uh, lawfare obsessives will, of course, note that this was all done through Trump's uh, former right-hand lawyer, Michael Cohen, who has spent the last few years uh, spectacularly turning on his his once boss. So, you know, let me start with you, Quinta. What do we know about where the grand jury is and uh, how likely and potentially when uh, an indictment might be uh, coming down the line? So literally, as you were giving your your wind up there, Alan, uh, Insider reported that the grand jury, which was, I think, widely expected to hand down an indictment today, um, is actually not meeting today. And it's not meeting Thursday either. It has been meeting uh, Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, um, which means that anything that will happen will not happen until next week at the earliest if this reporting is correct. So that's that's a, a fun little twist. And I don't think we know anything about why that is happening. Would you like to speculate wildly? I have absolutely no idea. I mean, look, it's so initially the reporting was that they were there would be an indictment this Monday or Wednesday. So today on Monday, the grand jury voted to hear testimony from Robert Costello, um, who is a witness put forward by Trump. So in New York, apparently the typical grand jury procedure is that the defense can put forward a witness to way in ahead of an indictment, which is not usually how it works. But the grand jury did decide to hear from Costello. Uh, Costello himself is a pretty interesting figure. We can talk about him. Uh, So I have no idea if maybe what they heard was exciting enough that prosecutors decided to change their approach or something. Um, but who knows, truly. Um, so this look, th- this case has taken a really long and winding road to get where it currently is. And without giving like a 20 minute wind up, I will just quickly say that it traces back to a plea agreement that Michael Cohen made in, I believe, 2018 uh, with the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. So this is a federal case where he essentially admitted to working to coordinate hush money payments to two women, Karen McDougal and Stormy Daniels, on behalf of Trump in the run-up to the 2016 election. Both women uh, had said that they had had affairs with Trump and were threatening to go forward with it in the months before the election, which uh, I think the Trump campaign reasonably assumed might hurt his chances, especially after the Access Hollywood tape. So (laughs) Scott's like, no, it would have been fine. Look, maybe it would have been. Who the hell knows? So the legal theory in Cohen's case was essentially that this was a campaign finance violation. And the reasoning under federal campaign law is that it was a donation in kind to the Trump campaign to make these payments, you know, essentially keeping these women silent uh, as a benefit to the campaign, uh, that it was unreported and that it was way, way over the limit for contributions because these were uh, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. 
uh, Cohen pleaded guilty to this. There was an investigation at the federal level, which was dropped. Uh, the DA's office picked up the baton. There's been a lot of back and forth within the DA's office about whether or not it should be pursued. And the reporting has been that the legal theory on which uh, Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg would be moving forward would have to do with a New York statute against falsifying business records. And so the argument here, as I understand it, is that the records about Cohen's payments and the payments back to Cohen are not listed as a hush money payment. They're listed as Cohen being on retainer. Um, I believe that's correct. And so the argument is this is a falsification of business records. That's only a misdemeanor. In order to raise it to a felony, they need to tie it to another crime. And that's where things get really hairy because there's a question about, well, is the crime under federal election law? I don't believe it's been tested in New York court. If you can tie this business records provision together with a federal crime, is it under New York election law? If so, why are we looking at New York election law when this is a federal election? It all gets very complicated very quickly. Um, and for that reason, among others, and I've really only given a small portion of the of the story here, I think there's a lot of skepticism among the commentariat about the wisdom of bringing this case if indeed Bragg decides to go that route. Well, so so let's talk about that. I mean, I'm curious, Quinta, are you, I, I think you probably know more about this than than all of us, just in terms of you've been following this so closely. I mean, are you part of that commentariat that is, that is getting a little queasy about uh, using this, I don't want to say far-fetched legal theory, but certainly not like super obvious legal theory to do this true, like unprecedented act in American history? I am skeptical, and I will explain why, and this will require me talking for a bit, so apologies, listeners. I will say there has been kind of a, a meme that started like, oh, this case isn't very important, or that the conduct at issue isn't very important, and therefore it doesn't really make sense to charge Trump for it. I actually disagree with that. I wrote a couple lawfare pieces back when the Stormy Daniels story uh, was first unfolding with Bob Bauer, uh, who's an election lawyer on lawfare arguing that Trump's conduct in the Stormy Daniels case was actually was sufficient to justify an impeachment, although it did not demand an impeachment. And our argument there is that this is conduct by Trump where he was attempting to deprive the or attempting to and did deprive the public of information that could help its decision making in the run up to an election. And importantly, so because of the, the structure of these payments, in the in the Stormy Daniels case, Cohen made the payments and then Trump paid him back in increments over time. The Those repayments to Cohen continued through 2017 when Trump was in the Oval Office. You can see the New York Times has a really striking story from back then. Cohen provided to Congress uh, photocopies of the checks that have Trump's signature on them on days when he was in the White House. So... It is a it is a lie that was made in advance of the election. It was a lie that continued throughout Trump's term in office, um, where he was continuing to cover this up, pretend that he didn't have any involvement in it. And I do think that like that actually that is important. That does go to the character of the president and it does go to the sort of ability of the public to make an informed choice about its its leader, separate from whether it would have made a good choice. Now, <laughs> that said, Part of the rule of law is deciding whether any particular case should be brought. There are a lot of different considerations that go into that. I'm more familiar with the Justice Department considerations that are in the Justice Manual, less so in the New York case. But the, some of the considerations that pe- that you're supposed to think about involve, you know, what the public interest is in bringing the case, whether you can get a conviction, <laughs> importantly. And then, you know, there are factors of prosecutorial discretion, right? You, you don't prosecute everyone for breaking every law. And I will say that the backstory of this case, which involved the Southern District of New York deciding not to pursue criminal charges against Trump, we don't know why, but they, they'd made the decision that they weren't going to do it, that it was passed to the DA's office, that there was a lo- we know a ton of chaos in the DA's office about whether or not they're going to pursue these charges. 
that led to a lot of recriminations, resignations from the DA's office. Uh, one prosecutor published a book basically arguing that it had been mishandled. Um, now all that information is in the public eye. It would be great for Trump's defense. And then uh, Bragg essentially did a 180 and decided that he was going to pursue this information. I just, it is hard for me to see with all of that and the the sort of uncertain legal rationale untested legal rationale behind this, whether or not this is really an instance where justice is being served by pursuing this case. And in saying that, I don't think I'm saying that I want to put Trump above the law. I'm saying that I want Trump to be treated like everybody else. And in this instance, if somebody else had done this and it were a similarly shaky legal theory, I think we would also look askance at that. I do think it opens up the question of a political prosecution. Now, I think it's also important that we keep in mind, you know, This is just one case. The Fulton County investigation is moving forward. The Justice Department's investigations are moving forward. This case is really in some ways uniquely situated, but it's just kind of a tangle. And I don't really, I don't know. I don't feel optimistic about it. You heard it here first, everyone. Quinta Jurassic, unlikely MAGA legal defender. You know, I'll I'll say I don't disagree with much of Quinta's assessment of this case, but I think I reach a very different conclusion about the need to go forward at this point, setting aside the question as to whether the DA's office could have exercised a better decision-making process and judgment up to this point. You know, they've really put themselves at the tip of the spear of a much broader set of claims that we know is coming down the pike. And in so doing so, they've really set up a weird relationship and incentive structure with former President Trump and his kind of supporting apparatus, right? We've seen President Trump reveal his cards about what he was planning to do, I think, if any of these indictments came down, which is he's calling for public resistance, essentially, or at least public protest that brings with it the threat of public resistance. I actually think his willingness to invoke that in this case should make it much harder for Bragg to back down at this point in terms of bringing some sort of charge and accountability. Um, Because I think it sets a really perverse incentive for this particular actor or set of actors to say, oh, this is actually like an effective strategy for doing this, to look like they've caused the DA to back down. It doesn't mean you should go forward if you thought it was not a merited claim. But frankly, I don't think a lot of the legal criticisms of this claim are as well-founded as people are kind of spinning them out to be. I mean, particularly the link to federal law. While I understand it's my understanding, having not read through all the case law, but from reviewing of it is that the primary issue is that this isn't something that's been done to federal law before. But the actual requirement here is a mens rea requirement. It requires the subjective intent to conceal or facilitate an underlying crime. I don't think that's the sort of thing that would hinge on actually on even the actuality of there being a crime. It's the understanding that you're doing it intentionally to uncover what you understand to be a crime. So I don't think the federal nature of it would be that big a a hook here. You know, it seems to me like they have a credible case. Now, maybe there's a very good public argument to say we should make this make clear this is actually not that big a deal. Yeah, it carries a prison sentence. It's, you know, four years, I think, is the max prison sentence. Plenty of people who are charged under this do not face any prison time. They face stiff penalties. Um, They face probationary periods. This is a very commonly used offense, Um, even at the felony level. Maybe there's a a good argument to try and negotiate a plea agreement that says maybe you can plea out to a misdemeanor level and we don't have to get to that intent level. That I think there's maybe a strong case for if there are these broader legal questions. But I don't think you can go forward at this point having gone this far, clearly telegraphed it. And the office has clearly been, frankly, like informing the media about this deliberately or not. Somebody is telling the media that this stuff is coming down the pike. I think it'd be a really hard problematic precedent for future law enforcement efforts to back down at this point without doing anything. To be clear, I think that the question of whether they should back down after Trump made threats of potential violence and whether Bragg should have done the 180 are separate questions. The 180 happened in recent months. I think he, it seems to me that the the better part of valor would have been to just set this down and work on other things. I agree that once Trump started saying, you know, suggesting that people rally for him, that the office is in a difficult position. I think, Scott, you raise an interesting point. And I, I think that your concern would be, I think, stronger if this was the only potential prosecution, right? You know, my my sense is that both the Georgia and the DOJ investigations are moving in the direction of some sort of prosecution or some sort of indictment, and that both of those uh, investigations will be much more legally clear cut. 
and so will not raise the sorts of issues that you know Quinta has pointed out might attend this prosecution. Trump will no doubt try to do the exact same intimidation tactic, and the idea that either uh, Fonnie Willis or uh, Jack Smith are going to be bullied by Trump calling for crowds outside the courthouse is, I think, uh, the chance of that is exactly zero. So I do think that ultimately, you know, Trump's threats will be shown to be a paper tiger because of these other prosecutions, which I do think makes maybe a little less important for Bragg to, you know, soldier on no matter no matter what, right? Um, now, again, I, I do think that if Bragg, if Bragg thinks he has a good case, he should bring that case no matter what Trump says about you know, riots in the street. But I, I do worry that the logic of, well, Trump has now called your bluff, therefore you have to go barrel through even if you ultimately think the case is weak. That That's kind of what worries me a little bit. No, I mean, I, I think you're underestimating the kind of position that or the implications that this could have for those future prosecutorial efforts, which is part of the reason I think Bragg's office needs to way in terms of the public equity that goes into any sort of prosecutorial decision that weighs strongly in favor of proceeding if there's a merit merited claim. Again, no one's saying, you know, pursue something if you don't think you can make the claim. And somehow all these leaks and signaling that they're going to do this is a misleading or somehow under overrepresenting the sort of arguments they think they actually have available to them. You know, it's a problem when a group of people think they have effectively bullied a prosecutor into not bringing charges that he was intent on bringing. Maybe that was a, not an accurate representation of Bragg's intent from the outcome, but certainly the one that has been picked up in the media and that seems like his office has contributed to to some degree. You know, that I think in my mind makes it much more likely that you're going to see much stronger resistance in Atlanta and in Washington DC and other places where I agree indictments are likely to come that might be more strongly founded. And that, among other things, poses a public safety threat to people who live in those cities, including me, who live in Washington, D.C. You know, I think you actually encouraging and doing things that feed the fire for this sort of response is kind of a problem. And I think any law enforcement official, even though it's outside of his jurisdiction, needs to take into account that, well, if we are setting up a structure that's going to contribute to this sort of lawlessness in the future, we need to take steps to mitigate that and weigh that in, uh, bring that into the equation. And so, like, I, you know, I don't think you can completely rule that out of the equation. I think it has to enter in here because that's clearly part of the calculus that Trump's leading into. And if it seems like it works here, they're going to try it even harder in the future. I don't have a doubt in my mind about that. So before we close this segment out, I do want to ask you both about what you think sort of the broader legal and maybe more relevantly political implications of this are, right? Obviously, we have these two other investigations. And so there's one interesting question about how what effect would uh, a you know, New York indictment have on the Georgia and DOJ cases? And then there's the broader political context. Of course, Trump is not just the former president. He is the still leading front runner in the 2024 Republican nomination. Um, Ron DeSantis, who we'll talk about in the next segment, hasn't yet, I think, officially announced, but he's widely expected to do so. And so presumably he would love nothing more than his leading uh, competitor to be taken down or at least distracted with an indictment. And yet at the same time, uh, it's possible that an indictment would cause the GOP to rally around Trump. There's a, uh, a letter that uh, Jim Jordan, who's the head of the House Judiciary Committee, and Brian Stell, who's the head of the House Administration Committee, both Republicans, of course, uh, they sent this letter to the Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg, accusing him of a, quote, unprecedented abuse of prosecutorial authority and uh, demanding, basically, that he testifies before uh, Congress. Um, so they're clearly going to make a lot of hay out of this. I'm curious what, what you all think about how the politics will will play out. I will say it is pretty objectively funny that the Republican primary field finds itself in a position where DeSantis could be hugely advantaged in his case for the presidency if Trump were to be indicted, and yet he cannot actually say that he thinks it would be bad for Trump to be indicted because doing so would potentially lose him the primary um, incredible all around. Well done, everybody. I do think that a Trump indictment, there's reason to think that it could, you know, encourage his super fans, make them hold on even tighter. That's and and I could certainly imagine that that could help him in the primary. That said, the idea that this is like in any way good for him, like that's crazy talk. That's like 2016 trauma of like, oh my God, this thing happened and we can't explain it. I will put on the table here, you heard it here first, listeners, it is not good if you are running for the president in a general election to be under indictment. That will not help you get swing voters. That is a, that is a three chili pepper take, if I've ever heard one. Scott, what do you think? 
I totally agree with that. And I also think it actually puts Republican supporters in even a trickier position and lays a little bit of a pitfall that they are falling into of their own volition. Because of the nature of this claim, because of the personal nature, you can make kind of a Bill Clinton defense in a way of Trump in this. And that's, yeah, he may have done something that's a little illegal uh, and a little untoward, but it's because he's covering up an embarrassing personal situation. This doesn't really get to the heart of the matter. This is a little bit politically motivated. And that is a valence that is going to allow a lot of people to side with Trump on this, who, despite a lot of kind of legal issues that might come up and, and policy issues that otherwise might push the other direction. That's going to be a lot harder to do for future indictments that are coming down the road, especially if one is coming the Mar-a-Lago investigation. It's worth noting in the last 12 hours, 24 hours, we've seen the D.C. Circuit take up a decision that we actually haven't seen the text of in the district court in D.C., um, but that had allowed one of Trump's lawyers to proceed with uh, testifying about his engagements with Trump despite attorney-client privilege on the basis of a crime fraud exception, basically concluding Trump lied to his lawyers about continuing to possess classified records. The D.C. Circuit heard that on a very quick turnaround, and the, D- uh, the Justice Department yeah, like, filed like a brief within a few 12 hours. 12 hours or something. It was like an overnight briefing schedule. DOJ filed their brief at 5.36 a.m. Oh, God. Godspeed, lawyers. I, I hope those lawyers get some donuts and coffee. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But the fact that they're pushing this, this aggressively, I think, shows that they're actually like further along in this investigation than I would have expected at this point, meaning stuff really may come, come down the pike much more quickly. And for Republicans who have come to Trump's defense on this, it's going to put them in a difficult position because retaining classified documents and lying to your lawyers about it is just a different, much more serious game. Uh, we saw that over the summer when the story first broke. It's kind of been quiet since then. But once it comes out, I think that's the one that's really going to be a hard one politically for Republicans to deal with around Trump. So this is not the end of the story. This is just the beginning. Well, that brings us to our next topic, because as we're talking about one former president slash future presidential contender, let us talk about the person who's widely perceived to be his clearest rival, current Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who, despite being not declared, often polls at the front of the pack or just behind former President Donald Trump in the pack of potential contenders for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. This past week, we saw DeSantis respond to an interesting questionnaire put forward by none other than you know, journalist extraordinaire Tucker Carlson uh, on the Fox News program asking about DeSantis's views and actually a very legitimate question uh, what DeSantis's views were on the Ukraine conflict, an issue that as the governor of Florida, he has not really had opportunity or need to weigh in on. And after a fair amount of delay, it seems, because this isn't the first time he's gotten a question along these lines, he responded with a fairly long written out question or uh, response, excuse me, that I think does more sophisticated things than the way it's actually being portrayed. And we can get into that a little bit. But at its essence, essentially says the Ukraine conflict is not a vital interest to the United States and suggests that there should be limits on the extent to which the United States should support Ukraine. Doesn't go so far to say cutting off Ukraine, that there shouldn't be any support for Ukraine. In fact, he kind of suggests the opposite of that. Um, But he objects to what he describes as a Biden administration blank check approach of unlimited support and also is dismissive about the conflict itself, suggesting it is essentially a quote-unquote territorial dispute between Ukraine and Russia, as opposed to an act of aggression or something much more severe, which is how many people are viewing it. This has kicked off a pretty strong response in a lot of circles, particularly among foreign policy folks on the right and the right of center. A lot of people who are kind of in the never Trump camp, a lot of people in the more conventional conservative camp, uh, many of whom have been fairly strong supporters of Ukraine, even if they are still critical of some of the Biden administration's approach there. But it also clearly signals that now the two leading front runners of the Republican nominee, at least presently, are people who support a much more isolationist is probably too strong, but a much more uh, small C conservative foreign policy and particularly aren't necessarily committed to continuing strong support for Ukraine if they were to be elected. I'm curious for for you all, how striking an outcome is this? How surprising is this really? And what do you think it means? How significant will it be moving forward, both for Ukraine um, and potentially for the election that is rapidly sneaking up on us, even though it's still almost two years away? Alan, let me start with you. So I, I think this is an interesting story, and I have a bunch of somewhat unconnected thoughts about it. You know, the first thing I will say, and I mean, I, I assume I speak for the rest of you, though, obviously, correct me if I'm wrong, is that DeSantis is incorrect. This is not a territorial dispute. This is an act of aggression. And in fact, it is in America's vital interest to support uh, European sovereign integrity and NATO and, and all that sort of stuff. 
So putting aside the merits of this debate, which I don't think is actually that interesting in the context of this story. So what does it say that DeSantis took this position? So I think the first thing is, you know, I think it about DeSantis in particular, I think it shows that, you know, he is, despite being a, it seems fairly competent governor of Florida, obviously you can disagree with his politics, but he does seem to be like, you know, he is governing, right, in a fairly competent way. It's certainly Floridians seem to like him. Um, and being kind of a master of domestic culture war messaging is still quite new to the foreign policy world and is clearly trying to figure out his whole set of positions on this. And, you know, one reason why I've always been a little more skeptical about the narrative that DeSantis's success in Florida will translate one-to-one on a national scale is because on topics that governors don't need to think about or have experience about like foreign policy, he's fairly untested. Um, and so we'll just you know have to see what he thinks about China and Taiwan, what he thinks about Middle East issues, what he thinks about all of these issues. And you know, we'll see if, if, if he is as successful in that messaging as he has been on sort of domestic policy stuff. The second thing is, I think it's hard to know how seriously to take this, right? My sense is that DeSantis is very much a kind of a chameleon shape-shifting like creature that does not have particularly like firm policy views on a lot of issues. I mean, I think you can actually see this in Florida where he kind of vacillates weirdly from, you know, like hard right-wing culture war stuff to, you know, spending a lot of money on Everglades restoration. Like it, it, I think he's like constantly triangulating. And, and so, you know, I could easily imagine if he becomes the nominee or if he becomes president, right, in 2024, he might you know, turn on a dime. Right. Um, you know, either because events happen or just because he feels that the political winds are shifting. Right. I mean, just to go back to our, uh, you know, to George W. Bush, you know, who talked about how against nation building he was all through his campaign. And then 9-11 happened and then the Iraq war happened. And we'll talk about it in the next in the next segment. And the third thing I want to say is, you know, I, I, I obviously disagree with the substance of his remarks, but I do want to make sure that there is still a space in discourse about the war in Ukraine, especially among sort of staunch Ukraine defenders, to recognize that you do need to have people asking, constantly asking these sorts of skeptical questions, right? About what is the strategy? What is the plan? What is America's national interest? And that I think in a certain sense, it reflects something. And again, to preview our next topic, it reflects something I think that has been salutary about the war in Iraq, which is that that disaster did cause a lot of folks, especially on the right, to change their priors about military intervention. Um, so again, it's not to say that DeSantis is right. I think he's very much wrong on this. But I do think there needs to be a space for this debate. And what's unfortunate about this coming from DeSantis in this context is that it becomes part of the you know, 2024 election. It becomes very politicized. And so it becomes very difficult to ask these tough questions about, well, what should America's strategy be? What should the the lines be, you know, how big should the check be, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, on a purely mercenary political sense, I do think that, as you say, Alan, this this speaks to the, I think, growing sense that uh, perhaps Ron DeSantis is not 100% ready for prime time or that he is positioning himself in such a way as to be advantageous for the Republican primary, but that could really, really hurt him in a general election. So it is certainly true. I'm looking at a survey that Pew put together on support for Ukraine. And there has been a steady increase in the last year of people who are Republican or lean Republican who say that the U.S. is providing too much support for Ukraine. You see like that a teeny tiny bit in people who are Democratic or lean Democratic, but not nearly as much um, in the lean Republican category. And so I do wonder, you know, whether DeSantis is kind of picking up on that and trying to position himself in a newly isolationist uh, Republican base to do well against Trump. But the problem is just that I don't know if that feeling is really shared within the general electorate. And it's also not shared within the Republican Party. Um, like you saw DeSantis after he made this this statement, getting hammered by other Republicans in the Senate, including Marco Rubio, so the senator from his own state, um, saying, I can't remember the exact wording, but basically saying that he thought that DeSantis was extremely wrong. So that's not like a super great look. Overall, it just feels to me like 
a lot of DeSantis's efforts, which are sort of positioning himself to do really well on Tucker Carlson, but maybe not so much connected to what people are actually interested in. And I do think that, the, you know, I can see how DeSantis has kind of backed himself into a corner here, because the thing is that if you listen to a lot of the rhetoric coming out of the Kremlin on Ukraine, it sounds strikingly similar to the way that hard right American Republicans talk about uh, gender and sexuality issues from the Kremlin. It is all about how the gay Jewish fascists in Kiev want to, you know, indoctrinate your children into 72 genders. I'm barely exaggerating. I don't even think I am exaggerating. And so there's kind of a, a natural sense in which sympathy with Russia there in the way that Tucker Carlson has voiced that kind of sympathy follows naturally from DeSantis's culture war shtick. The problem is just like, I just don't think there's that much of a constituency for that. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't know. The last thing that I'll say is that the real crime here is that uh, Tucker Carlson posted the answers to this survey in tweets that are like, I don't know, like eight paragraphs long. And that is just an offense against my eyes. Tucker Carlson paid for that Twitter blue. There we go. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. So I'm going to do something I was not sure I would ever do on this podcast, but I'm going to do it and bear with me because I think you're going to overreact when I say what I'm going to do. I'm about to defend Ron DeSantis uh, on this particular I, I, issue. I, I kind of defended Ron DeSantis. That's fine. But that's that's expected. You're a contrarian by nature. What? <laughs> like, instinctually. I'm just kidding. He's right, Alan. So here's, here's – I really encourage people to go back and read DeSantis's response because DeSantis' response is a classic, carefully crafted – political response that's trying to walk a particular political line by framing what it's responding to. And there's a response to a question that expressly says, is the Ukraine conflict supporting Ukraine a vital national interest, I think is the way Tucker framed it, right? And what DeSantis does is he says, U.S. has many vital interests, not really addressing the question, tries to drop it, then kind of suggests it, this one doesn't rival up to other major ones. But he doesn't actually say we shouldn't be supporting Ukraine in this conflict. He says, I don't like the blank check approach of the Biden administration. He says, I don't like the policy of regime change, which was a statement that Biden kind of hinted at in some early statements we talked about a, little, a year ago, maybe a little over a year ago, um, but really is not a core tenant of the US or Biden administration policy at this point. Um, and then he criticizes the way the policy has driven Russia into an alliance with China. And he says, we shouldn't do things that overreach or risk too much of a conflict with Russia. It's like F-16, long range missiles, the two things he notes that they should be, quote unquote, off the table, as along with ground troops. Groups, right, that risk is unacceptable. That's actually entirely consistent with what the Biden administration has done, more or less. There's talk about F-16s, talk about certain long-range missiles. The real long-range ones that presumably he's talking about about attacking Russia haven't really been on the table. Certainly not for that use by the Biden administration, right? So he's trying to frame himself and position himself to both criticize the Biden administration, avoid saying outright, "I don't want to support Ukraine," but without elevating it to the idea that this is a you know, major U.S. interests, which is something that I think he correctly reads that the much more domestically focused Trump supporters that he is constantly trying to cater to are going to find objectionable, right? He's trying to triangulate across these different positions. And actually, this does that really well as a statement. I'm sure the person who wrote this is, was just like nailed it. What they didn't anticipate is that the politics around this issue set is really, really hard. And there isn't, I think you got at with this, Quinta, I think a little bit, although maybe I'm, I'm, I'm talking about a constituency one to the left. 
there's not a constituency for this exact angle that's really vocal and going to come to your support, right? You kind of got to get in or get out um, on this particular issue set. And he's trying to tread this line as he constantly is trying to say, I'm giving you what you want, Trump supporters, but I also can do it in a way that doesn't respond in all caps, which, by the way, former President Trump did in his response to this questionnaire substantially, and says, I'm going to do it in a more reasonable way and in a way that can leave a door open for more conventional conservatives to also get on the bandwagon. And that's just a really, really hard line to draw. And I, you can't do it through kind of conventional ways with this primary electorate. This primary electorate's a lot more emotive. They want all caps. At this stage. Yeah, maybe. They want something, right? Like people are heated. They're emotive about these sorts of issues. And, you know, a lot of the, the game right now is capturing attention, capturing media cycles. And this really turned into a big trap for him um, that undermined his credibility, despite, frankly, being a statement that if you had handed this to me up right, I was like, oh, yeah, you kind of checked all the boxes here. But your your read of the turf was just a little off. This is something that we saw again and again in the 2016 primaries, that there were all these uh, politicians and who were running and were trying to kind of thread the needle, right, by appealing to the base without going as far as Trump. And the thing that happens is just like Trump just outflanks them every time by saying what they're like cutesily trying not to say. And I think the lesson of 2016 in some respects, at least for the the uh, Republican primary electorate, is that like you don't actually get that many points for trying to be coy. I think that's right. But I also think here's the other thing that this doesn't do, right, which I think we've seen the other announced candidate in this race. No, not Vimek Ramaswamy uh, and other folks who have been, who are technically announced, right? But I mean, Nikki Haley, what did she do in response to this? She doubled down and went all the way in the other pool and said, no, Ukraine is a vital interest and we need to be catering to that. And we should start taking this issue seriously and not, you know, taking it so unseriously as you, Governor DeSantis, targeting DeSantis. And by the way, effectively targeting Trump with the same statements because DeSantis and him, you know, Trump is even further out in the outfield in regards to this issue. So, you know, that's the space that she's going to step into. And DeSantis is kind of seeding the ground on this. He's He weakly tried to leave open to it with some of the implications of his statement and Haley stepping in. Now, that might not be enough of a political constituency to get a winner, but maybe she sees enough opera space there to like drive the conversation or make this actually a competitive race around this issue, or at least have a vocal Republican constituency for the alternative on this issue, which I actually think is something that a lot of conventional conservatives will might be willing to break with Trump more and more vocally. Certainly they have in the commentary in response to DeSantis's opinion. So I think I think this is kind of consequential and, and is really going to shape the tenor of this political debate moving forward in kind of unexpected ways. But it's it's creating the cleavages, really illustrating the cleavages that seem like they're emerging between the different potential candidates in the Republican field. So it is 20 years since the United States invaded Iraq in 2003, and there has been a lot of thought-provoking and, frankly, sad and depressing coverage. There is a, a great interview that Scott did um, on the Lawfare podcast, which I highly recommend to listeners. For this segment, we wanted to just reflect on the war and also, I think, on you know, our particular experiences as, you know, U.S. millennials, um, we sort of grew up with this conflict and had it shape our professional lives in Scott's case in a very profound way that I think makes this anniversary a really striking opportunity for reflection, I think it's fair to say. So, Scott, let me start with you. What have you been thinking about on this anniversary? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. Um, you know, the Iraq conflict has really been something that you described really shaped my professional trajectory, along with the kind of broader global war on terrorism that it's tied to, but has always been kind of independent of in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I was somebody who as a senior in high school, what's the year 9-11 happened was when I was a senior in high school, and then the Iraq invasion happened the next year. I kind of bought the, you know, Bush administration's line, hook, line, and sinker. It made sense to me as a, you know, someone not particularly uh, well-versed. And then over the course of college, pretty quickly, I got very concerned, particularly with Iraq, uh, which seemed to turn south so quickly, although problems certainly emerged in Afghanistan uh, later as well. And I've always felt really personally guilty about that, if I'm being completely honest, because I bought it, I support it. I was even kind of vocal about it in certain ways because involved in politics uh, as, a, as a student in high school. And it's really something that for me has really driven my drive to work on Iraq issues um, is because I want to understand how this decision was arrived at and the consequences of of it uh, and hopefully find some way to, to better address it. 
you know, where does this lead now is always a really tricky question, you know, like, I think it's a question we have to ask ourselves. Iraq itself is a really troubled country, one that I still still think we have as the United States and the broader national community has really vested interest in. It really does lie at the crossroads of the Middle East, uh, a very sensitive region in which there are a lot of global interests tied up in. And it's not a country that can be unstable without compromising a lot of those interests. And so I don't think it's an easy thing to walk away from. Um, I don't think a, you know, Kabul or Afghanistan-style withdrawal was ever actually feasible with Iraq and that we're likely to have engagements there for a long time. But it's a much harder, in a lot of ways, entity to engage with now because you have weak institutions, because you have widespread corruption, widespread distrust of the United States, uh, and most importantly, Iran having hugely outsized influence throughout the country in a lot of ways that it didn't have in the Hussein era and for years after the uh, invasion. Scott, I'm just 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 curious. Why why do you say? I, I just want your opinion. I don't have any priors on this. Why do you say that we can't walk away from Iraq in the way that we could and did walk away from Afghanistan? Because I think there are just far far too many actual U.S. interests really implicated by Iraq and its neighborhood to be able to move away from it. I mean, we saw what happened with an unstable Iraq in 2014, right? Northern third of the country essentially got taken over by a terrorist group that rapidly took over at one point, I think almost a majority of Syrian territory, um, threatened Turkey nearby, destabilized regions very close to Israel as an ally, destabilized, uh, you know, energy flows for the region, energy exports, huge humanitarian costs, uh, really tragic humanitarian costs. And this is something that I think needs to weigh in the moral imagination. I mean, there are lots of um, minority groups that are constantly at risk of violence in different corners of Iraq and eastern Syria. We know the Yazidis and others and the ex- horrible experiences they had during the Islamic State conflict. It's just not a part of the world that's actually easy to let become a vacuum. That's not quite what's happened in Afghanistan either, and I, I don't want to draw a parallel there, but I do think that is something that would happen in Iraq if there were not some sort of government being reinforced and stabilized by some factor, whether it's the international community, maybe Iran, although Iran seems much more intent on destabilizing the government so it can exercise kind of dominant influence over the parts of the country that are most important to it. So I just don't think it's actually, I think there are vital US interests in Iraq. I don't think that was wrong. I think what was wrong was the idea that you can dictate its political future through violence. Uh, I think that was tragically wrong. It's been proved tragically wrong. And at this point, I think what the United States international community have to do and can do is to try and set up a framework to kind of embed Iraq in of allies, relationships, regional partners to really reinforce its institutions and try and promote stability and make it as effective as you can be, understanding it's going to be a long-term project uh, and one that's not as easy as just throwing money and troops and blood and treasure at a problem, which was more or less what we did for the first several years of of our occupation there. Yeah. So... I I think I'm a little younger than Scott. So I was, I think I was like 16 when the Iraq war started. So I was in high school and I, I too, like Scott, supported it to the extent that I, I had you know much political consciousness at the time. I'm curious sort of your story, Scott. For me, I, I, I was briefly a neoconservative, uh, not out of any particular conviction, but I think uh, just out of my general- That does not surprise yeah, me at you, all. You know, it's funny. I, actually, I told my wife this morning uh, that we were talking about this and uh, I said I was a neoconservative in high school and her response was, that does not surprise me at all. So that was her response as well. And I, you we're know, again- same wavelength. Yeah, exactly. And again, not not out of any like real political conviction, I think because I was uh, just kind of contrarian and, you know, growing up on Long Island, all your friends are lefties. And, um, you know, at the time, I thought that there were some great arguments for neoconservatism. I thought that sort of the intellectual ferment was was there. Um, you know, that was the site of really interesting ideas. And um, I don't know, I was a high school debater. And I think I just found it fun to debate that side of the issue. And I remember my high school actually uh, hosted a debate kind of in the run up to the war in Iraq, um, so that, you know, we could, we could, all the students could channel their political frustrations. And um, I gave what I thought at the time was a very clever uh, argument for the war in Iraq. And uh, yeah, so obviously wrong like everybody else. And, and you know, what I've been trying to figure out in, in the year since is what the lessons are for like 16-year-old Alan, right, of, of that. I mean, obviously, the, 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 the 
sort of catastrophe of the Iraq war should update our priors on some sort of key geopolitical facts. Like it's much easier to break things than build things. And, you know, you cannot just tell countries and people how to structure their societies and politics. And you know, all of this is much, much harder than it might seem. You need exit strategies, whatever like, all the standard lessons are, right? And obviously it's not like every single person voted for the Iraq war or supported the Iraq war, right? Barack Obama famously, in some ways, got the 2008 Democratic nomination in part because he was an anti-war, kind of, he was the, the, the most credible anti-war Democrat. And yet, I just remember, or at least I think I remember at the time, uh, this just profound general consensus that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, right? Even the French, right, who were the most against it, basically, you know, said, oh, there are probably weapons of mass destruction, but let the inspectors go in and all of that. And the reason I say that is because, you know, for better or for worse, the public just is so reliant on credible and honest information from its government to make informed decisions. And, the response of, well, you should always be skeptical of what your government tells you only gets you so far. Because if you're always skeptical, you run into the opposite problem of sort of becoming a, a kook and a crank. And so I, I've never sort of satisfactorily answered or never answered to my satisfaction the question of sort of what like epistemic lessons should one learn if one was just like a normal vaguely publicly engaged citizen who supported the war in Iraq, right? And again, this is not an attempt to rewrite history or to justify, like, it was a mistake, it was a terrible decision, like, all of this is true. But in terms of, like, what is the lesson for your future decision procedures? Um, I don't know. Because it, it can't be, you know, never trust the government, never go to war. Like, that can't be the lesson. Otherwise, we're just going to be doing this thing where we ping pong between extremes. And and that's a problem as well. And yeah, so that that's my, that's my, those are my thoughts. Yeah, my my story is a little different, I think, because I we're we're doing like the three bears and Goldilocks. I am the youngest of all, um, and so I I was a relatively small child while all this was happening. I think if you had asked me, I would have said I opposed it, but that was not because I actually understood anything that was happening. Uh, <laughs> it was because, like all small children, I enjoyed uh, parroting the political views of the adults around me with totally without comprehension. I do think from my perspective the war really shaped the way that i think people in our generation or maybe in my micro generation but i think this is true broad more broadly as well yeah it pushed us into a greater skepticism of government power and of what the government was saying particularly when it came to foreign policy and also toward a anti-interventionist position um, I really do think that it is striking how if you look at the sort of political discourse now that is acceptable, largely on the left, but not, I mean, we see it more and more on the right, thanks to sort of Trump's influence over the Republican Party. It has just swung so wildly away from the more interventionist mindset in 2003, where you were really drummed out if you didn't support the invasion, despite the fact that it wasn't 100% clear, you know, what what it was that was going on. That seems to me like it's a really, really major legacy of the war. And I do think that it's been striking to me how Ukraine is a mirror of this in some ways. And what I mean by that is that I think that a lot of people on the left began with a instinctively skeptical posture saying, you know, the intelligence community, the government lied in 2003. It's not actually disputed whether the intelligence community lied or whether they produced good intelligence that was then misrepresented by uh, the White House. But we can get into that debate another time that, you know, we, we were lied to essentially in 2003 to push us into war and we don't want to do that again. And there was a lot of skepticism about the Russian invasion on the left. And I actually do think that you have seen on the left uh, increased acceptance of the war in Ukraine as it has gone on, as it has become clear that what Russia is doing is really, uh, I think I'm, I'm comfortable calling it a you know imperialist, colonialist project and a war of aggression, um, and certainly engaging in, in crimes against humanity. But it took a really long time to get a lot of people there because of that kind of hangover from Iraq, which I think goes to your point, Alan, about you know, what happens if you sort of end up in reflexive skepticism without a clear 
way to distinguish that. And and I will say one of the things that I found really interesting in the run up to Ukraine was how the intelligence community in the U.S. actually seemed aware of that. And what you saw, if you remember, um, was that the the government, uh, both the U.S. government and I believe that the U.K. government released a unbelievable amount of intelligence to reporters and to the public in the run up to the war and i i really felt at the time like it was a way of saying like look in 2003 we told you that there were wmd and there weren't and this time we are showing you the evidence like we are not pulling the wool over your eyes both to get the public to trust them and to get reporters to trust them because nobody wants to be judy miller again right like there there is a a hangover of that's a, a reflective of that in the press as well. And so I think that was huge. I also think it's huge that people were able to corroborate that intelligence through open source investigations. You could see on Google Maps the tanks lining up on the border. That was huge. And it actually did lead me to wonder, you know, like, could the confusion and lies and misrepresentation that took place in 2003 about WMD in Iraq, could that have happened today in a time when there was just so much more publicly available information? Um, if I'm remembering correctly, I had a conversation about that uh, with someone at Bellingcat on the Lawfare podcast, and his his answer was, it would be a lot harder to do just because it is easier for people to find that information and corroborate it. Now, granted, that also means that there's more fuel for conspiracy theories. But I do think that it's worth reflecting on how how Iraq kind of shaped the way that we think about information coming from the intelligence community and how that has changed in the year since the Ukraine war began. I think I think that's totally right. Uh, and uh, you know, I would take one other lesson away that I think actually the Biden administration reflects maybe more than than any other kind of post-Iraq uh, war sort of administration, which is the extent to which we have to approach not just skepticism about the use of military force, but an acceptance of its really fundamental human costs. You know, uh, anybody who's worked on Iraq or Afghanistan, for that matter, for the last 20 years has seen really, really horrible things coming out of the violence. I'm one of them. I mean, I in a very remote way, but nonetheless, part of my work touched on things that I cannot ever get out of my mind, that uh, it can be really hard. You know, there's been, a, a, I think, an underappreciation to the extent to which we valorize uh, military, valorize the armed conflict. And, and some of that's totally completely warranted. It's an incredibly brave thing to do to serve in the armed services, obviously, um, and something worthy of respect. But it also means we need to understand just how brutal that is, not just for the U.S. soldiers doing it, but for the people living through it on the ground. I think a lot of the frustration and anger you hear from the veterans community that came after the fall of Kabul um, about the number of Afghans and Afghan allies left behind is really a reflection of that. It's a continuation of a, an effort that a lot of veterans and, and other folks who have spent time in Afghanistan and Iraq have channeled a lot of their energy into, which is this effort to try and help Afghans and, and Iraqis who helped us knowing the horrible situation that they're going to have to live through without assistance or, or and the threats they're likely to face. You know, recognizing that I do think is a lesson you can take away, Alan. Uh, I mean, it does mean that as individuals, we need to fight the instinct to uh, treat armed conflict as the sort of thing we see in action movies. I don't mean that, think that means that we need to swing to the other extreme uh, and embrace the, you know, never use military force anywhere in the world. I, I don't think that's right. I don't think the United States is the font of all evil in the world or its use of military force. And if you don't, if you don't buy that, then I think you accept that there are times where it's appropriate. But it does mean we have to be much more realistic about what it can actually accomplish, and particularly much more you know, clear-eyed about what the costs are if you fail, whether you win or fail, anytime you choose to deploy that tool set. And that's why we see the Biden administration actually being very calculating in how they use military force, even though they do, do use it and threaten to use it regularly. But I, I think it's the kind of latest point in a learning curve that, that we're still coming through, in part because our generation is now the generation that's beginning to enter into leadership positions that has this perspective and often has on the ground perspective from Afghanistan and Iraq informing those decisions. I think the challenge is what happens when we lose that generation and another generation comes up that might not have those experiences. Um, and I think we do see this generational cyclical element where every 30 years, people begin much more bullish about what American you know, the use of American military power overseas can accomplish. And I don't think we're out of that cycle. Um, but for the time being, at least, hopefully we have some lessons we can incorporate into our decision-making process, both as voters and, and policymakers. 
Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. But as you know, this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to think on in the week to come until we are back in your podcatcher. Alan, what do you have for us this week? So uh, continuing my theme of national security themed entertainment, uh, I have a TV recommendation. The Recruit, which is on Netflix, it's uh, only one season so far, but it has been renewed for a second season. It follows the uh, adventures of a uh, fresh out of law school uh, lawyer who joins the CIA and within seven days on the job becomes embroiled in a global international conspiracy, blah, blah. It's quite fun. It's very charming. It kind of understands its own absurdity. It has like a real element of veep to it as well, um, which is very entertaining. And the main character is played by uh, Noah Centineo, who is just remarkably charming. Like it's one of these shows that you just watch because the main character is just so very, very delightful. I mean, it is not realistic at all. I mean, I'm sure it gets, I think, some of the like inane CAA bureaucracy, right? But like as a lawyer, you do not have to deal with three, you know, shootouts and assassination attempts per episode. I mean, at least I hope that's not what uh, not my every episode, in, no. Not every episode. Do they say CIA officer or CIA agent? Uh, I don't know, actually. They say CIA asset a lot, but I actually don't remember what they mm. say officer or agent anyway well it should be cia officer okay it is it is really good it is really fun i mean the bureau it is not um but it is still just like fabulous like popcorn viewing so uh the recruit on netflix fun fact i once have a wrote a half a screenplay about a uh a tv pilot about a a state department lawyer facing a kind of similar scenario um that will never see the light of day sadly although one day maybe i'll pick it back up and actually write this thing uh because i feel like it's an underappreciated premise because if you're a government lawyer you're like seeing all sorts of weird shit going on i'm telling you if you i'm telling you now if if listeners if you want to give lawfare ten thousand dollars on patreon your your reward will be a uh, live performance of uh scott's screenplay with the Lawfare crew uh, playing the roles. Oh, I absolutely will. I will finish this thing. Most of it's just outlined at this point. I think I have like eight pages of dialogue. I will finish this thing and we can do a live reading. It's going to be great. It's very (laughs) mid-2000s when I wrote it, but that's okay. Quinta, what do you have for us this week? I have two movies about the Iraq War that I would like to recommend. One a documentary and one a feature film. The documentary is called The Unknown Known, and it is an Arrow Morris documentary about none other than Donald Rumsfeld. In many ways, it's kind of the spiritual sequel to Morris's great documentary, The Fog of War, which is about Robert McNamara, who is Secretary of Defense during a substantial portion of the Vietnam War. The Fog of War is really about McNamara's desire for redemption and refusal to admit that that's what he's searching for. Uh, The unknown known is really about, I think it's fair to say, Errol Morris's total bafflement with Rumsfeld's complete absence of any need to search for redemption or like consciousness that he might have done anything wrong at any point ever. It's an incredible documentary. It's utterly infuriating. It has a great score by Danny Elfman. Um, and it also has some great visuals of the the snowflakes. So Rumsfeld's memos from when he was in the Pentagon. So there's a, a famous one about the Iraq war that says starts with just saying, how start? Like, how do we start the war? Uh, where it has the snowflakes like falling from the from the ceiling and it's just like this storm of paper. I highly, highly recommend it. It's a really, really interesting watch. The second movie is a feature film. It is called In the Loop. Um, it is one of my favorite movies ever. And it is a British comedy about the run-up to the Iraq War from the perspective of the Brits. And a fictionalized version of the events that led to what was called at the time the dodgy dossier of intelligence that was supposedly supported uh, U.S. assessments of WMD, but in fact did not actually do that at all. And it's just a really delightful movie. It's incredibly funny. It's deeply foul-mouthed. Uh, it's very 
accurate and sharply observed in terms of the particular dynamics between the Brits and the Americans. There's an amazing performance by James Gandolfini as an American general, just a real delight all around. And it also does a nice job in not shying away from the sort of darkness and horror at the heart of it all. So highly recommended. I will second both of those and Fog of War. They're all phenomenal. Um, but I will add, I'm going to add another recommendation, although this is not my object lesson. Uh, there's an incredible documentary called Control Room that came out in 2004 that is about Al Jazeera covering the invasion of Iraq. It is a fascinating watch because uh, it really draws. It also spends a lot of time in CENTCOM and particularly with people, in, journalists embedded in CENTCOM or with CENTCOM's public relations officers. It's a fascinating, fascinating look at the invasion, including that the death of several Al Jazeera journalists over the course of the invasion and how they wrestle with it. I think one of the best on the ground things that I've seen, I haven't seen in years now, but it's always been on my short list of documentaries about Iraq. And I would, I would add that to the list there of documentaries and other films. Um, well, for my object lesson this week, I am taking a step back in history because there was a, an incredible story, especially for those of us who follow this kind of issue set for a long time that came out in the New York Times this week. And unfortunately, I think has gotten not enough coverage on account of the major events happening in New York uh, around former President Trump this week. And that is this amazing story where an individual who was involved kind of tangentially with the Reagan campaign, or at least supporters of President Reagan in 1980, has said that he participated in a trip with uh, another former governor of Texas, John Connolly, who was a major supporter of uh, then-candidate Reagan, to the Middle East in an effort to convince the then-revolutionary Iranian government slash regime, I hadn't quite, they're still in the process of government formation, to continue holding the U.S. hostages until after the election, in part because they believed it would hurt Jimmy Carter's chances of re-election. This is a long-standing theory. It's something that was investigated and rumored uh, shortly after um, the election. Uh, there were some congressional investigations about it. Then got picked up uh, when Gary Sick, a really phenomenal Middle East scholar uh, who actually worked in Carter's National Security Council and wrote, I think, the best book about the Iran hostage crisis called All Fall Down um, shortly after he left government. Uh, he wrote an op-ed in 1991 that kind of reinvigorated this idea and laid out the case that there may well have been some interference with by supporters of President Reagan with efforts to free the hostages. The hostages were released five minutes after Reagan was sworn into office, for those who may not recall. it's And this is an absolutely revelatory story. They dig into the efforts that Congress has done to investigate in the past and talk to several of the leading lawyers of that, who note that Connolly was never on their radar, so they never investigated these allegations. An individual came forward, came with him supposedly on this trip and says, I'm coming forward to be honest about this because former President Jimmy Carter is likely about to die. Uh, he's on hospice care uh, and that he thinks he felt the need to clear the record before uh, the former president passes. I don't know whether this is true or not. Uh, I don't know what to make of it. I've spent some time looking over the old congressional reports as an interest out of the story. But I will say is this, the prospect of someone on the account of politics interfering with something as horrible as the detention of Americans overseas warrants serious consideration and examination by federal authorities, even five decades after the fact, in my view, um, four or five decades after the fact. And insofar as there's any credibility behind the story, I think it's something that Congress and or the Justice Department or State Department or others in the government need to take a serious look at because this is just the sort of the thing that you need a serious historical accounting of to make underscore the extent to which it's not appropriate and not acceptable. And we may yet see the story resurrected again for a third round uh, in the years to come. Well, folks, on that somber note, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare, so be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links to past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at RETL Security, and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. Also, sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on patreon.com slash lawfare for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Alan and Quinta, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Till then, goodbye.